Uh, we are uh, continuing in our series, and we are in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 11, so if you would turn there with me and open your copy of God's Word, we'll start with John chapter 2. If you would stand with me as we read that. John chapter 2, starting at verse 1. It says, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the power of Jesus Christ in our lives. We thank you that you reign supreme that you are sovereign, that you can move all things and you can do all things. And Father, we come before you in humble submission saying, would you do a mighty work in us? We thank you, Jesus, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I'm going to be very frank with you. I'm a little emotionally spent this morning. Uh, Yesterday afternoon, I received a text from my father that my cousin was in a serious car accident, and one of them uh, was in critical condition. Several hours later, we received a text from my aunt that the 13-year-old son had went to be with Jesus. Uh, He was in a On I-94, they were traveling back from Miracle Camp, and the traffic had stopped, and somebody slammed into the back of their vehicle, and he was in the very back. They were taken to the hospital, and he was declared brain dead, Um, and we just didn't know any information until this morning. I got an update. Um, At some point in time, he was transferred to another hospital, and they decided to do another scan and found some activities of brain activity. So the next two to three days will <coughs> will determine whether he lives. So it's been a little rough the last 24 hours, and I've thought about a lot of things. And as we walk through what does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus, it really means everything, does it not? It's the thing that carries you through. It's the thing that that walks us through all things. And I find in this passage, and it was not intended by me, um, obviously the Holy Spirit 
that in this passage we find some incredible power. We find, um, of course, the first incident of Jesus' miraculous works. I want to walk through the story and, and talk through a number of things, but as we walk through the story, um, just the story itself, you know, here we have the scene set where Jesus is at a wedding in Cana, Cana being a very close place to where Jesus grew up, Nazareth, maybe about five miles. So it was close to Jesus' home. Um, it starts with on the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan Galilee. That could mean a lot of things. Some people take it as, you know, we see the first week, literally, of Jesus' life and ministry. Because uh, if you go back to John chapter 1, you'll find that it says the next day, the next day, the next day. And then it says in John chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day. Um, if that is the case, it could be. It's really irrelevant as far as this uh what we're getting at today, but there's a lot of things about this wedding we just don't know. We don't know who the wedding was for. It's never mentioned. Um, what we do know, is, and it may be quite possibly, um, that it was actually a relative of Jesus. We know that because for some reason it says that Mary was there and she had some sort of responsibility in the wedding itself. She was... Uh, whether she was helping with the food or the, the, you know, the hospitality. Um, but there is some sort of level of responsibility she has because when there is a problem, she comes to Jesus. Um, maybe Mary had some responsibility. She worked on the solution to the problem, um, which means that she knew something about it before anyone else did, Right? There's a difference I found as I was looking at this and just kind of quickly pointed out that there was a difference, and I think there's actually some application here. It's not the main application we want to get to, but I found this ironic, interesting, whatever you want to call it. It says in verse 1 that uh, the wedding on, at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. And then verse 2 starts, Jesus also was invited to the wedding. I find it very significant in my own mind as I begin to walk through a relationship with Jesus and my life, my personal life, um, that Mary was there and it says almost as an afterthought that Jesus also was invited. Kind of seems like Jesus was an afterthought. Oh yeah, we can also include Jesus. And I think there is an application here that, that I don't want to dig too much into, but there should be a priority in our activities and not an afterthought in involving Jesus. That He should be a priority in every aspect of our day, that when we start our day that we don't say, oh yeah, I need to also include Jesus in my day, but know that Jesus needs to be the priority of my day. Oh yeah, when I go to church, Jesus should also be part of the sermon and the music. No, no, Jesus is the sermon and the music. And that when we have our fellowship times together, whether it's a community group, whether it's a, a, a fellowship gathering of friends, whatever it might be, it shouldn't be that Jesus is an afterthought that's also included in it, but that it should be surrounded with the principle uh, uh, and the primary focus being Jesus. Not just an afterthought. 
And so the story goes on that, that Jesus had also been invited to the wedding. Mary comes up, and, and here we have the problem in the wedding, right? The problem is they ran out of wine, and this was catastrophic. And I don't want to understate how important this was, because in Jewish cultures, oftentimes a wedding may last a week, and it was the responsibility of the groom and his family to provide uh, uh, hospitality and refreshments that entire time. It was such a priority, if you understand Jewish culture, that, that, that this hospitality, which I think is sometimes lost in American culture of our home is our castle and we set up walls to protect ourselves and so forth, and that this is what's going on in my place. The reality is in Jewish culture, hospitality was everything. I just got done reading through the book of Judges, and in Judges, which is, by the way, an incredibly... Uh, 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 um, transparent picture of humanity. But in it, you read about the crimes of inhospitality. That when you had a visitor come and they came, they would always go to the center of town and they would sit there and somebody would invite them to stay in their home and not just in the center of town. Because hospitality was everything. Hospitality was so important. It was the groom's responsibility. The, the, the consequences here, I don't want you to get lost in translation, okay? Here's some of the consequences that would have come had it been made known that they ran out. Disgrace and shame on that wedding for the rest of their life. Remember so-and-so they got married and their hospitality failed. It would forever in Jewish culture stain their name a joyous occasion would then turn to anger there potentially get this okay there potentially could have been civil lawsuits because they ran out not exaggerating in jewish law if you fail to provide hospitality if you neglect especially if i've gone to your wedding and i provided for you and you then suddenly when i come to yours there is a neglect there could have been civil lawsuits the stewards the ones that hosted and helped would never be allowed to work at another wedding ever again for the rest of their life Okay, see, we can't grasp the magnitude of this, and this is a severe problem, and, and at some point in time, they came to a place where they were out, and they, Mary somehow knew about it. She goes to Jesus, right? That's Mary's response. She goes to Jesus. She informs him of the problem, and she believes he will solve it. Makes you wonder, what did, what did Mary believe? What did Mary, you know, she, she had treasured things up in her heart. We just uh, went through a couple of weeks ago where, where Jesus had been lost in the temple. And Jesus says, why were you looking for me? You should have known I would have been in my father's house doing my father's business. And it says that Mary treasured and pondered these things. When, when the shepherds came and shared about the glorious announcement of the angels, it says that Mary treasured up these things. When, when uh, the angel appeared to Mary and told her about this miraculous birth that would come and, and all all these things what did Mary believe makes me wonder she believed enough that she went to Jesus when she had a problem she presents the problem to him if only this was our response every time we have a problem in life we'll come back to this 
What was Jesus' response? Sometimes people get tripped up on this, right? Jesus says, woman, what have I to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Sounds so rude, right? If I talk to my mom like that, it's not disrespectful at all. In fact, the wording is actually the opposite. It's very respectful. In fact, when you find in John, at the end of the book, in, in John chapter 19, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he looks at his mother and uses the exact same phrasing in the most tender of moments as he is dying, his, breathing his last couple of breaths. He says, woman, behold your son, and points to John, the beloved disciple. And he says to the disciple John, uh, beloved, this is your mother. In other words, take care of her. He cared very much for his mother. This is not a sign of disrespect. And, and as he talks through this, this is a, a, uh, an important point of, of, of understanding as we walk through the ministry of Jesus, that Jesus was all about one thing. From the boyhood time when he was in the temple and they were looking for him, he said what? That his job, his responsibility was always to his father's business. And as Jesus sought in his understanding and his, he knew his life on earth had one purpose, he would mention this, this very phrase, my hour has not yet come. This hour was the very purpose and principal reason that Jesus came to earth. And you'll find throughout the entire book of John that Jesus would mention this hour over and over and over again. That his hour has not yet come. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, he turns to his disciples and he says to them, uh, stand up, be prepared. The hour is at hand. The betrayers are here. And then Jesus would go and he would die on a cross. And that was the hour that he had spent his entire life living for. We need to understand and ingrain in our hearts and in our minds that Jesus came to earth for one purpose, to die. That was Jesus' purpose in life, to die, to redeem mankind from sin, that he would offer himself for this one purpose in such a way that it says in, in Luke that as Jesus was getting ready to go to Jerusalem, his disciples said, we can't go to Jerusalem. They will take us and they will kill you. And Jesus, it says that he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, that he was so determined because that was his mission and his purpose in life. If only we had but a small grasp of that type of purpose and principle in our own life. It is overwhelming. Everything he did had to do with this hour. Everything. And yet, his love still shines through because he helps his mother, doesn't he? Jesus' response then, and, and it leads us to this first miracle, and we'll walk through this miracle, then we want to get through an application. The instructions, it says that Jesus says uh, that there are six, it says that there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. So basically when somebody would come in, these big jars, stone water jars would be there. They could wash their hands because it was such an important principle as part of Jewish law that you were ceremonially clean, that you would wash your hands. I want you to grasp the magnitude here, okay? Because Jesus says, fill those to the brim and then draw out for them and go serve, okay? That was the instructions, but I want you to grasp the magnitude here. These jars were 20 to 30 gallons each. Okay? Six 20 to 30 gallon jars. 
that is 120 to 180 gallons. And if you do the math, a gallon of water weighs about 10 pounds. They had to take these jars and fill them to the brim in the middle of the country of, if you look on a map, Cana is in the middle. I'm not sure where the water is, where they got it from, but they had to carry 1,200 to 1,600 pounds, not including stone jars. This is not a small task. We read this and we're like, oh yeah, six jars of water. And I'm thinking mason jars. No, think big. 20 to 30 gallons. That's 200 to 300 pounds apiece, not including jars of stone. And what did the servants do? Not a word of complaint. Not a word of of murmuring. It just says they went and did it. They went and did it. And then when they come back, they've got these jars filled to the brim. Uh, Where they got the water, I don't know. Maybe there was already water there, whatever it was. And at some point in time, a miracle happened. Nobody knows the moment it happened. But Jesus says, now draw some water out of there and go serve it to the master of the banquet. And and they do. Can you imagine the, the faith of these servants? You remember what we just said, neglect and and the running out was a a potential crime. And they had to do this crazy thing because the mother of this guy said to do whatever he says. And they draw it out. It doesn't say that they tasted it first. They took the first uh, bit and they offered it to the master of the house. And we, you know, can you imagine the fear and trepidation knowing that they could be in so much trouble bringing water to the master of the banquet? And it says he tastes it and he says this is the best. They did it with blind faith, drawing it out without testing it. Can you imagine what courage... And it was better than the purchase supply. Jesus, at some point in time, transitioned it from water to wine. And we read this and we're like, man, it's an incredible uh, uh, miracle. That's a, a great fairy tale story. And, and, and yeah, there's some incredible moments of faith. There's some incredible moments of application. There's some interesting things. And yet, this is so pertinent to our own personal lives. And I'll walk through three points for you to take away this morning. The first one is that we should recognize the tendencies in our own hearts. That we ought to recognize the tendency in our own heart. Our problems in life are almost always self-inflicted, are they not? Our problems in life are almost always, usually 99.9% our fault. The source here, poor planning, presumption, procrastination. I don't know anybody that doesn't fall prey to those at some point in time. Poor planning, procrastination, presumption. Oh, I assumed this was going to happen. The struggle then is that we put it off. We don't try and... Do the one thing necessary. Why? Because of pride. We can 
we can also try and solve it on our own. When I have issues in my own uh, life, I find that usually what I do is I try and figure out a solution, I come up with a plan, and then I present it to God after I've come up with the plan. God, if we, you know what, I got the greatest idea here, God, like God needs my ideas. And if we just do it this way, we'll fix this problem that I created. And the sorrow is that we often forfeit so much joy because of our tendencies. So I want us to recognize the tendency, and the tendency is this. I mean, is it not the problem of humanity that we have put ourselves in this place? You know, sometimes people say, well, it's not my fault that I am the way I am. No, it's 100% your fault. That sin has entered into my life and I have chosen to do what is right in my own eyes. And so I've read through the book of Judges for a personal time, which, by the way, that's such a, such a hard book. I find it fitting that at the end of the book, it ends with a phrase that is used a couple of times throughout the entire book. But in Judges chapter 21, I think it's verse 25, it says that everyone did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king in Israel. And that is the description of the human heart, that everyone does what is right in their own eyes because there is no king. If we do not have Jesus Christ as our Savior because we have not placed Him as king over our life, because guess what? He will be king whether you like it or not. And if we have not submitted to Him, then we are walking in sorrow and struggle and pain all of the days of our life. And here's what I want you to remember. So we recognize that tendency. I want you to remember this truth. Jesus doesn't need anything from us to solve the problem. He waits. He waits wanting us to come to him. He waits. He wants us to trust in him. And he is willing. He works on our behalf and he doesn't need our help. When I found out about my cousin yesterday, we just prayed. We pleaded. When I found out he was dead, and you begin to compartmentalize as a man oftentimes, and you say, well, well, what about the rest of them and, and, and various things? And, and you walk through that. And then you find out where there's hope. And you begin to plead again. And the Lord brought something to my mind this morning. As I was walking through this and, and trying to understand and grasp what the Lord is doing, why would you do this? And I listened on the radio on the way into the office or to the church this morning. And, and uh, you know, somebody was preaching and they used the verse from Romans 8.28. You know, God works all things for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purposes. And it's one of those verses where right now you sit here and say, but how? How? And you fight being angry. You fight walking through this. You know, they were just on a missions trip in Tennessee last weekend, and now this is going to happen. This doesn't make sense. It wasn't their fault. And the Lord says to me, uh, remember that story about Mary and Martha and and their brother. 
And I walk through that story in my mind as, as uh, Martha and Mary uh, have lost their brother. And Mary comes to Jesus and says to Jesus, if you would have only been here, my brother would have lived. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection. And she says, yeah, yeah, I know. In the end, you know, you will all raise us all up together to be with you. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. And he prays and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And it's a reminder to me that who are we when we have problems to not go to Jesus with every single problem and say, I know that you are the resurrection of the dead. I know that you are the living bread of life, that you have all things, that you can take all things. And so we walk around our lives with all these problems and we say, I'm going to fix them. And imagine if Mary wouldn't have had the courage and the understanding to know what she must have known in her heart, that Jesus was the Messiah. He could fix this problem and he is the one person that could fix it. And she goes right to him. And Jesus is waiting And what I find amazing in this passage is not everything that we've covered, but what comes next. Because I want us to recognize the tendencies of our hearts. I want us to remember the truth that Jesus is able to fix them. But I also want us to realize the tragedy that awaits us when we don't do the first two things. Our lack of faith and obedience doesn't just affect us. Many others will be impacted as well. Last week, I believe it was, uh, Vicki came up and asked for prayer. She had found, they had found spots on her spleen and said, I just want you to pray for me. This is why we ask you to pray. This is why we want to pray with you. Monday, she goes into the doctor. Guess what? Spots are gone. I get to rejoice and celebrate in that because I know who took them away. It wasn't a doctor, it wasn't a hospital, it wasn't an x-ray that malfunctioned the first time. My cousin's son was declared brain dead and was on life support so they could harvest his organs. And he may still die, I don't know, but I know the one who resurrects the dead to life. And we go to him to pray and say, God, will you take care of this problem? And every time he says, I will. It may not always look like the way we think it's going to, but if we are unwilling to share those with one another and to pray with one another, and I know I have hammered on this over and over again, but if we are unwilling to pray with one another as a body of believers, we will never see a mighty God who works in our lives. And here's the realization of this strategy. There would have been lost wealth. Notice what it says that the master of the banquet says. He says, this is the best. If they would have never went to Jesus, let's say they would have went to the corner convenience store and picked up a few more of, of the, the, the drink to, to offer, and it would have just been that, but not from Jesus. Jesus offers us the best, and if we aren't willing to go to him, we lose out on that. Lost witness, how many people receive the blessing from this obedience? Do you look at the story? I count seven people that are blessed because of the obedience of these people and because of Mary. The servants are blessed. 
Can you imagine the excitement when they completely blindly draw out water from this jar, not knowing that Jesus is performing a miracle and offering it, and when the master of the banquet says, this is the best. The servants were ministered. The master of the banquet was ministered to when he got to taste the best of what Jesus offers. The bride and groom, unbeknownst to them, we don't even know if they knew of the problem that was at hand, but suddenly the, the master of the banquet is praising the groom for something he had nothing to do with, saying, thank you, most people do the opposite of what you're doing, but you're doing the best for last. Mary was blessed for her obedience. She has this problem. She wants to protect whoever it is, whether it's family, whether it's just a, a close friend. She goes to Jesus, and Jesus performs a miracle, and Mary is blessed. The guests are blessed. Those who are in attendance there got to be a part of, of witnessing something and tasting something that Jesus had done, an incredible thing. The disciples are blessed. It says at the very end of the passage that the disciples saw this and they believed God. They believed in Jesus and his ministry. And last but not least, us who have eyes that can read this passage are blessed. Because we see the reality that Jesus is at work. And imagine if nobody would have done anything about it. If nobody would have went to Jesus. Imagine if Mary had said, you know what? Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't want to bother him. All those people we just mentioned wouldn't have been blessed by this ministry that Jesus performs. Lost opportunity and last but not least there is lost worship what joy fills our hearts in praise and adoration when we see the answers of prayer and if we're unwilling to go to jesus with all of our problems no matter what they are you know we we joke around you know i lost my keys and and my wonderful wife will say well have you prayed about it which is by the way so much more helpful than well, where did you have them last? If I knew that, I wouldn't be looking for them. We love to pray with our children when they lose things or when um, they have a problem that they've encountered. You know why? Because we have confidence that Jesus is able and he will answer that prayer. And then we can point back and say, this is why we prayed. Because the one person who can do something about it answers prayer. And we can create a heart of worship in our own lives and in our children's lives and our families' lives. And we can praise God. And I look forward to the day when we can rejoice at the answers to prayer. And I am looking forward to the possibility that in two to three days I can pronounce that my cousin's son, 13 years old, is still alive. And what a rejoicing that will be. But if the Lord decides to take him, I think we mentioned this a number of weeks back. What if the greatest, what if the worst thing that could happen to us was actually the best thing that could happen to us? Death. I mean, if you think about it, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if he has, uh, His blood has been poured out for us and we have received that and we have become part of His family, and, and if we know no more life in this life, we spend eternity with Him. 
It is a win-win situation, brothers and sisters, that if we were to die today, we get to spend eternity with Him. But I look forward to being able to proclaim in the testimony that can come from this if we are willing to go to Jesus and plead on one another's behalf. That's what the family is about. It's not that we just gather together so we can get a pep talk, right? I mean, that'd be kind of silly because I'm not good at pep talks. I haven't mentioned it yet. I've been purposing not to, the Spartan race. Because I heard from a couple of the guys beforehand that I mentioned it a lot in the sermons, and I labeled it that stupid race. It was a stupid race. But I've signed up for two more, so... We didn't give a pep talk before we ran out there. We just went. That's not why we gather together. We gather together because there is a brother and sisterhood of the body of Christ. That we can share our hurts and our needs with one another and we can take them to the one person who can do something about it. So what do I want us to get from this? I don't want to have a debate on whether or not this was uh, when the miracle took place, what the miracle exactly was. I want us to get out of this. That Mary knew the one thing that could be done and should be done. And she did it. She went to Jesus. And it changed all these people's lives to experience the one thing that Jesus offered. I don't know what's going on in your individual lives. I don't know the hurts that you're suffering necessarily. Some bring in burdens every week. And I appreciate that Stephen just paused during worship this morning so we could pray for one another. Because that's the one thing this is about. We're going to have communion this morning. It's a time of fellowship. It's a recognizing of the greatest need that we ever had, right? It's a recognition of the reality that without Christ we are hopeless. And as Paul declares in one of his epistles, that if Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead, then we as Christians are the most to be pitied because we are without hope. But we believe that Jesus Christ, because of the need that we had, that as human beings we are born into a life of sin, in such a way that whatever we do, no matter what we strive to do, no matter how good we try to be, there is always sin. We're always going to have problems in our personal lives. We're going to have problems in our marriages. We're going to have problems in our families. We're going to have problems in all kinds of things. You know why? Because we are selfish sinners. And it is so true that when the Word of God tells us that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags, that's the reality. It's the reality that if you read Romans chapter 3 and the description of us, it is not a pretty picture. That we are filled with venom and lies and deceit and this horribleness. And it ends that passage by saying there is none that does good. No, not one. There is no one that pursues after God. There is no one righteous. And if we take the law and we say, I'm going to apply the law to my life and I'm going to obey the works of the law and I'm going to become righteous by the doing. 
It says that the works of the law do one thing. They shut our mouths. And they proclaim that we are unrighteous before a holy God. And the beauty of it is then Paul jumps into this incredible, profound passage in Romans chapter 20, or 3, verses 21 through 25. He says, but here it is. That Christ died for our sins. That we might be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That we might be justified and made righteous so that His righteousness would be transferred to us who believe. And he says it is all by faith. Why do we celebrate the Lord's table? Because at some point in our lives, if we are believers... We've come to a place where we say, I have a problem and I must go to Jesus. And he did a miraculous work far greater than changing water into wine. He changed an unrepentant heart. And he changed an unrighteousness in us into righteousness. So that we could stand before God on a day of judgment. And he would look at us and say, welcome. And so Paul says, whenever you do celebrate the Lord's table, you declare his death and resurrection. And so we offer freely to all who believe, if you are not a believer, if this is not your story, if your story has not been that I had a problem and I went to Jesus to fix it, then there is no point for you coming. Because this isn't for you. You don't celebrate anything. Apart from Jesus, there is no celebration in life. There is only darkness and misery and eternal damnation. But praise be to God, as Paul declares, after looking at the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, he says, but praise be to God who has given us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we come to the table, we celebrate. We celebrate. The resurrection of the dead. One who resurrects the dead and gives new life. I'm going to pray. and Stephen's going to play some music. And I'd encourage you as a family, and if you don't have family here, go find a family. Because we are one family. To pray, to thank God for what He has done, and to ask Him to search your heart and reveal to you if there is anything you need to deal with. And then come as a family, and celebrate what He has done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You that in the midst of darkness there's shown a great light. We thank You that Jesus Christ is our Savior, a Lamb spotless without blemish who offered Himself as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for all of our sins. Father, we rejoice in that and we rejoice that You are one who is willing and able and You wait for us to come to You with our problems. And so, Father, we come before You as a people in desperate need of You. We rejoice that You offer us eternal life and we ask that You would help us to walk day by day in this life that we could shed selfishness, that we can shed our sin, that we can realize that if we carry our burdens to you, you will answer those things. And we can all rejoice in your mighty, miraculous works. We thank you, Jesus. We pray in your precious and holy name.
Amen.